0: audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, if it was 12 years ago, give or take a year or two, I would say that by this, it's not even, it's become a phrase. And 12 years ago, it would not have been a phrase. It would have just been a repetition of a word. All right. But, but, Namely, because of a family in Louisiana, okay, we get this, and the patriarch of that family, we get this phrase in our brains, and the vast majority of people will know exactly what I'm talking about when you say, happy, 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 all right? And, and I, 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 was, I was born in Memphis, I lived five years in Mississippi, but now I have a Kansas accent. And there is such a thing as a Kansas accent. I promise you. But it's nothing like a Mississippi accent or a Louisiana accent. So I'm not even going to try to to model Phil Robertson. But it is something to think about. Happiness in life. What is happiness to you? Now, as I speak this, um, there is a... I don't know if they're watching online, if you are. Hello, Zed and Lindsay. There's a Goodwin family out west right now. Because Zed and his family, Zed very much, and his family with him... Loves the snow in Colorado. And if I was to say that for Zed Goodwin, happiness is white powder, okay? You got to be careful because a lot of people's minds are going to go the wrong place with that, all right? But you got to phrase it up right. Happiness for him is 10 inches Of fresh powder on the slopes of the Alpine of Colorado, all right? So maybe that, maybe you understand that. Maybe you're someone along those lines. Maybe happiness for you, speaking of inches, is is a one-inch stack of loaded gift cards and an outlet mall in front of you. Maybe that's happiness for you. Maybe a ribeye cooked to a perfect medium rare. That would not be happiness for my wife. She would say that's disgusting, all right? You got to cook it for at least another hour and a half before that thing's edible in her mind, all right? So, but maybe for you, that that is happiness. I will tell you what happiness is for my wife. It's the family sitting together around a table eating dinner. Absolutely loves that. What about this one? Maybe happiness is, is a weekend at Grandma and Grandpa's. Now, notice I didn't tell you whose happiness that would be. Is that... The grandkids' happiness or mom and dad's happiness? Maybe a little bit both. I don't know. Um, what about this one? Happiness is the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Okay. Yeah. There's some Bills fans out there. And I'm sorry. Uh, you're going to be sad by the end of the day. It's all right. Uh, I'm right there with you, though. KU has lost three games in a row, and it's basketball season. Oh, my goodness. We have a special prayer time after church for, for Now we're not going to. Sorry. Um, now, when you get into religious circles and you begin talking about this subject of happiness, or more specifically, being happy, you often see a comparison contrast that takes place, and it has to do with two words: happiness and joy. And to be completely honest with you, I believe that sometimes happiness in the and I've been I've been. A victim of this myself probably in preaching over the past number of years of, of, of kind of short-changing happiness and, and really focusing. Because joy is like, yeah, you, can, you can't be happy all the time, but you can have joy all the time. What does that even mean? I mean, seriously, is there really that much difference between happiness and joy? You know, you can find happy in the Bible 15 times. Now, I'm not talking about happiness. You'll find that as well. Okay, but just the word happy. Now, on the side of joy, we'll just say you find joy more times in Scripture, a lot more times. All of that being said, though, it, the picture begins to get a little more balanced when you take into consideration the Greek and the Hebrew. Our Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written originally in Greek. And there's a word that will jump off the pages at you of what we're going to look at today. And that word, we've taken it and we've kind of put two syllables in it. You know what I mean? It, some people call it blessed. Others call it blessed. But it is the same word. Guess what that word is in the Greek? The word, or in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's esher. That's the word. And guess what it means? Happy. Happy. So as we look to the Psalms some today, there might be some of you, and I'm not talking about marking out blessed or blessed and replacing it. That's not what I'm saying about. But maybe it would be wise for us at times to draw a little arrow beside it because in the original language, it meant happy. And honestly, brothers and sisters, who doesn't want to be happy? I mean, Seriously. So, if we are to look at our lives and see and honestly say, Am I a happy person? Am I, is, is that how people would characterize me? And if I am not, then there's probably some questions that I need to begin asking myself. And as we journey through a few places in the Psalms today, there are five questions that we're gonna ask when it comes. Now, if you're one of these guys that, oh, a sermon's gotta have some points, this sermon is for you, all right? And those points are gonna come in the form of questions. And question number one is this. Where am I looking for advice? Do do I want to be happy in life? Question number one, where am I looking for advice? I mean, seriously, is this that difficult? I mean, is it really hard to look for advice in the places we should be looking for advice? Yes, it is. I don't know what it is about our human nature that we sometimes get drawn to the last places we should be going for advice. And it seems like that's many, many times where we get pulled to and we find ourselves being tripped up in this search for happiness. We're going to start right at the beginning, the first psalm. All right, Psalm 1. It's not really chapters. This is a collection of wisdom writings of the Old Testament that took place over a large period of time, speaking of Old Testament history, by a number of different authors. Several we're going to look at today come from King David, but others come from the sons of Korah. There's some we're not sure exactly where they came from. The first one, though, is most likely a Psalm of David, and this is what it says. Psalm 1, verse 1. Here we go. How blessed... Okay, how what? How happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This is interesting to me, is because you would think when you're looking at a description of someone, you would say they do something, not that they don't do something. But right here at the very beginning of our collection of Psalms, we see happy is the man who does not... Three different times. Let's look at it again. Does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit at the seat of scoffers. As I've already told you, this is most likely the writing of King David because of the style of it and because of the timing of it. We don't know that for sure. Many, many times he claims his writing. This isn't one of those times. Now let me ask you something. Is it getting easier Or more difficult in our world to tell what is good advice and bad advice. In some ways, it's like it's getting easier. In some ways, it's like it's getting just a little more muddied up. Does that make sense? And the best way to describe this to you would probably be looking at a time span. And here's the question for you. Let's say that you are a parent or a grandparent above the age of 50. We'll just set the line right there because I still like to be below the line. And that line keeps on getting a little higher. (laughs) So we're gonna set it at 50 right now because I'm a youngin'. Okay, so, and I'm a long ways away from 50. Long ways. Okay, I just gotta throw that out there. Okay, so let's set that line there. And if if you're a parent or a grandparent, you're over the age of 50, let me ask you this. If somebody was to ask you if a certain choice in life A certain direction in life is right or wrong. You're over the age of 50, and you can get contrasted with somebody who's the age of 12 to 14, and we start going through these life choices, these different subjects. Do you think you're going to line up consistently with, yes, that's wrong? Yes, that's right? Seriously. If you think you will, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Our, our world has done a pretty magnificent job of muddying the waters. And there are things that the world is trying to tell us that are right, they say they're wrong. Things that they're telling us that are wrong, they're telling us they're right. It's nothing new. Understand that. It's been going on for a long, long time. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, where am I going For counsel, because if I go to the wrong places, that line moves constantly. Fortunately, our author doesn't stop with one verse in the first psalm. Look what comes next verses two and three. This is talking about the blessed man, the blessed person, the blessed woman, the blessed child, the happy one. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If you want the litmus test for what is right and wrong, you can go to the council of wise people, but you better always take that counsel and vet it with this. This is our ultimate litmus test. This does not change. Okay, you're saying it doesn't change, preacher. Did you catch what it it said at the end? If we go to this place for our counsel, guess what? Everything's going to be hunky-dory. It's going to be great. What's it say there? Look at the very end of it. Whatever he does, he prospers. So does that mean if I follow the right advice... It's going to be easy street from here on out. Is that what it means? Let me tell you something. Three of the next four questions we're going to look at that we're going to be asking ourselves are questions asked by the authors in Psalms in times of great difficulty in life. No. Following the right advice doesn't always mean life is going to be easy. All right. Second question. First one, where do I get my advice? Second question, what do I fear? What do I fear? Wow, brothers and sisters, do we got a lot to be afraid of or what? I mean, we are told to fear a lot of things if we go to the wrong place for advice. Are we not? We're told to fear... Worldwide government, we're told to fear more localized government, we're told to fear pandemic, we're told to fear this, we're told to fear this, we're told to fear this, we're told to fear this. You cannot watch the news without being told what to fear. Do you understand that? That's the world in which we live. And here's the thing. What I choose to fear changes Everything, maybe I should rephrase that, whom I choose to fear, changes everything. Now, we're not going to spend a a great deal of time in this one. You know why? Because we just covered it about three weeks ago. All right? Remember that? We were talking about wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And we're going to continue to see that relayed in scripture. Alright, we're going to go from the first psalm to the 112th psalm. So we're going to jump back there a little ways. Most of these psalms are relatively short so you're not to have to turn real, real far. 119th psalm makes up for all the others being short. Whoo, man, wow, it's a, it's a long one. But we're not going to go there today. Alright, the 112th psalm. As you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit something about when that was written. It was written in the technical phrase for it, the post- exile time frame of the kingdom of Judah. The reason I tell you that, that's important when we see what's written here. I'll explain that here in just a second. The 112th Psalm, let's read once again verse 1. This is not King David writing this one. All right, this is long after King David. And it says this, Praise the Lord. How blessed, what's that? How what? How happy, Is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. As I told you, this is written during the post-exile time of the nation of Judah. It was during this time that they began, before, shortly before this time, they began being called the Jews. Right? And, And because they would not follow God, and instead following false gods and being an idolatrous nation, God said i are gonna to have to change the direction, and I've tried a lot to change the direction of where you're going, and it hasn't worked. So this is what's gonna happen: you're gonna persecution in a, in, a, in a form that hasn't happened in a long, long time. And what that looked like is the nation of Babylon, a world power of the time, coming and conquering the nation of Judah and taking them captive back home. All right, that period of time lasted about seventy years. And when that time began to draw to a close, they began coming back to their homeland, to the, to the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah. Here's the problem. When you're gone for 70 years and there's nobody but the riffraff back there taking care of things while you're gone, you don't go back to an immaculate-looking place. And you can read about it in the, in the words of Ezra and Nehemiah in your Old Testament. And what you will find is this. The city was in ruins. The temple was was in ruins everything was in ruins and it was not an easy time to go back home matter of fact when nehemiah is writing about about the rebuilding of the walls of the city of jerusalem you know what the, the phraseology that they that is used and made famous even to this day they held hammers in one hand what do you think they had in the other swords All right, so while you got somebody working on the wall here, you got others watching their back with swords because it was a difficult time. And there are people who did not want that city rebuilt. But they rebuilt those walls, and Ezra shows up. They rebuild the temple. God was behind it, but it was not an easy time. Times were tough. And let me tell you, when you're building with a hammer in one hand, holding a sword in the other hand, it's a time for fear, (laughs) okay? It is a difficult time. There was a lot to fear in that environment. But our author here says, happy is the man, happy is the woman, happy is the child who fears God when everyone else is fearing what? Everything else. There's only one thing to fear that cancels out all other fears. And that fear is of God. Mighty respect for his power and his judgment. Knowing that he will make things right. I don't have to fear the governments of this world. Why? Because even the unjust governments of this world, and there's a bunch of them throughout our world, let me tell you, God's going to make it right. God is the one whom we fear. Happy is the man, the woman, the child who understands that truth. All right, next one. Do I want to be happy? Here's a question. How do I treat those around me? How do I treat those around me? Um, You can turn to the 41st Psalm now, and this is one of David, a Psalm of David, the 41st Psalm. This psalm was written by the hand of David at the bidding of the Lord in a very, very difficult time of his life. Okay? Um, We've all experienced difficult times in life, have we not? Yes, we probably have some here in this. If we were to rate the difficulty of life, I'm not going to be on the upper end of that scale in this room, I can tell you right now. There are those who have experienced things much more difficult than I have in my life. All right? I don't know how many people have fallen quite into the shoes of David, though. When he wrote this was the time around the time that his son wanted to kill him. He was the king, and he was run out of the city and run out of his palace by his own son. The name of the son was Absalom. This guy was pretty high on himself, all right? Okay, this is just weird. He would cut his hair every year and weigh it so he could brag about it. I'm looking around here at the men in this room right now. I don't think any of us are doing that, all right? It'd be a little embarrassing for me to the pile of hair after a haircut gets smaller every single time, okay? But Absalom, he had luxurious, I mean he was a good-looking fella. All right? But more than just him being a little captivated by himself when he looked in the mirror, he was somebody who was who was after the throne that was not his. So we've got we've got David writing this at a time when his own son was trying to take the throne from him. So let's read it. The are the 41st psalm verse 1. And this is what it says. This does not sound to me like someone who's in a very difficult position. This is what he says. How blessed, how what? How happy is the one who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. If your Bible looks a little bit different, that that could be just fine. That word, the Hebrew word that the New American Standard translates helpless could also be translated poor. Right? So that makes it a little bit different. How happy is he who considers the poor? The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. Here's something for us to understand. Two thoughts on serving. Okay? Because serving is important. Incredibly important. And serving exists beyond the, what's done on Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong. I very much appreciate the people who serve on Sunday mornings. Very, very much. But it's much bigger than that. Two things about serving. First one is this. When our eyes are trained for service, we see others hurting even when we are hurting ourselves. Does that make any sense? And by hurting ourselves, I don't mean like stabbing ourselves. I mean we are in a position of hurting. And even in those moments, if we have trained our eyes for service, even in those moments... We see others who are hurting. There is nothing more Jesus-like than that. Guys, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you will see times when Jesus was worn out. I mean, he was flat worn out. And he served. Jesus just found out. Now he's Jesus, so he already knew what's going on with this. But He finds out that John the Baptist is dead one of the few guys who understood at least just a little bit of what Jesus was here for. And not only that, he was his cousin. And Jesus finds out that he's been beheaded by King Herod. And when that took place, guys, what you've got to understand about that, Jesus served. He wanted to be by himself, and for a short time, he was by himself. But then he came amongst the people. And what did he do? He served. First thing about service. Second one is this. When we have made it a habit to serve others, we indirectly set ourselves up for encouragement and help ourselves. And what I mean by that is this. King David, I told you, this is a bad time. He's run out of town by a guy named Absalom, his son. The king before King David was a guy by the name of Saul. Saul's family line had pretty much been wiped out, not by David, but by the enemies of Israel. There's still one guy around, though. His name was Mephibosheth. And a little bit earlier in this time, of Mephibosheth was a guy who had it kind of rough. He, he was lame in his legs. He could not walk, right? And he was someone who was from this line of David. And let me tell you something. When, when you take the place of a king before you and there is friction there between the families, what kings would do many times is... Off with the head. We're done with him. That family's over and done with. David treated Mephibosheth with respect. He served him. He gave him a place at the royal table. David is being run out of Jerusalem. Guess who shows up? Now, not Mephibosheth because he can't walk. That's a pretty difficult time. But he sends his servant to greet David. David didn't even have time to grab anything. He was run out of Jerusalem by his son. And he shows up with provisions and all kinds of things to help David. Did David ever, ever foresee that happening when he helped Mephibosheth the years before? No, absolutely not. Do we serve so that people will serve us? No, absolutely not. But let me tell you something. When difficult times come, servants get served. I'm just telling you that's what happens. I see families who serve faithfully people, bringing meals to them, helping them out in difficult times. And when that family goes through a difficult time, you cannot keep people away from them. They want to help. That is what happens when we serve. The lesson is clear and we know it by experience. Those who serve God by serving others are happy people. It's just the nature of it. Next question. Do I long for the presence of God? Am I a happy person? Next question. Do I long for the presence of God? Turn to 84th Psalm. Psalm 84. This is, again, once again, this is not a, a psalm of David. This could have happened somewhat during the time of David. This is before the exile of, of the nation of Judah the, and the city of Jerusalem. Okay, you look to the 84th Psalm. Look at verse 4. Here's what it says. How blessed, how what? How happy. How happy are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Scripture makes something very, very clear. Jesus made it clear when he spoke with a woman at a well, and she was a Samaritan woman. And he said, it will not be geography about worshiping God one day. He says, the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and truth. And it's not about a mountain. It's not about a temple it's about the heart. All right? And then another guy by the name of Stephen just happened to be the very first martyr of the church, the first guy to ever, very first guy to lose his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he was standing in the midst of Jerusalem with the temple right there. And he said, "God does not dwell in these buildings made with hands. It's not a brick or mortar situation here. God dwells within his people so so what does that mean does that mean that we can seek god wherever he's at maybe in his creation i have been on a mountaintop before when there was a thunderstorm and let me tell you something i was thinking about god okay and i was fearing him all right um is, is it about geography what about the holy land okay if i just go to the if i just go to the mid east and walk the steps of where jesus walked it will bring me to a closer place with god and maybe for some people that's going to help out there well i'm not going to tell them not to But according to Scripture, it's not about geography. Because God lives within His people. There is nothing special about this building. What makes this place a unique and a holy place this morning has nothing to do with a geography dot on a map, it has to do with a collection of the people of God. And happy is the man, the woman, the child who sees the importance of being in the family and sharing with the family and encouraging one another in the family. Why do we come to church? Because we need each other. We're not in heaven yet. And guess what? Looks a lot like heaven. We're going to be together anyway. For eternity, so we better get used to it. And happy is the person who understands that. The fact that God works through His people and we need one another and when we are together in an incredibly unique way that we can't even fully understand or explain God is with us something very important to understand do I long for the presence of God that exists in the body of his people next question do I remember to share do I remember and share my story all right, we're going to look now, uh, turn to Psalm, there's 32nd Psalm, 32nd Psalm, and if, if you're somebody who, who, who um, you don't have to multitask, if you want to put your nose in the 32nd Psalm, and put your finger in the 51st Psalm, that would be kind of funny, I'd like to see you do that, all right, but we're going to bounce back and forth between those two, just here for a moment, and as you're turning there to the 32nd Psalm, I need you to understand something, King David who wrote this psalm, as well as the 51st psalm, was not a perfect man. He's called a man after God's own heart, but he was far from perfect. He was an adulterer, and he was a murderer. And it's funny how our minds often go to, man, he was an adulterer and a murderer. Guys, even if he hadn't committed adultery or committed murder, he was still a sinner. And it's funny how our minds go to those to events in his life and highlight those. And the, probably the reason for that is because there were some incredibly horrible ramifications for those actions in his life. Now, I told you to turn to the 32nd Psalm, but for just a moment, remember the 51st. Because when we think about David and Bathsheba and everything that took place there and the ugliness of it, our minds usually go to the 51st Psalm. Because when we read the 51st Psalm, we see the heart of David. We find the words of a broken man. And more importantly, we find the words of a man who knew he was broken. A man who was wise enough to come to God and plead for forgiveness. Now understand, he needed a kick in the seat of the pants first that came in the form of a man named Nathan, who was a prophet of God, who came and told this really cute little story to David until David realized that that story was all about him and that his secret was very well known. And when we look at the 51st Psalm, these are the type of words we see. David speaking, he says, my sin is ever before me. When I wake up in the morning, when I go to bed at night, when I come together and I see my family and I know that I've failed miserably, my sin is before me all the time. You ever felt that before? I cannot get away from it. And he says to the Lord, wash me fully from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin." You see, brothers and sisters, when guilt grabs a hold of us, we must remember the promise of God. We have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? When we believe in him, when we confess his name repeatedly, when we repent, when we say, not me in charge anymore, you're in charge when we are buried in the waters of baptism and washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ do you understand something that is a rebirth and it not only takes care of sin of the past it takes care of the future that is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ and i'm telling you brothers and sisters when guilt grabs a hold of us we must remember the promise of god we've been forgiven Happy is the one who remembers that. The 32nd Psalm, verse 1. Look at it. These are the words of a man who has been forgiven. And he says, he's experienced, and he says this. How blessed. How what? How happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As I've already told you, the 32nd Psalm, no matter where it fits in the order, it was written after the 51st 51st Psalm. So turn for a moment over to Psalm 51. And there's something we need to understand about it. I've already told you the heart of David in this place. He desperately needs forgiveness and he knows it and he comes to God. But it's like this. He says, God, you are the only one who can forgive me. I have sinned against you. My Part of my mind's like, well, what did Uriah have to say about that? I mean, he's dead now because you had him killed. But, but David says, God, it's against you and you alone that I have sinned because David understood that when I hurt others, who am I really hurting? Our father. And he goes through all of that, and he says, forgive me, Lord. And then look, what, look at verse 13. Verse 12 talks about him restoring the joy, the happiness of his salvation. And then in verse 13, he says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. You know why the 32nd Psalm was written after the 51st Psalm? Is because David was following through with what he said. The 32nd psalm is all about the forgiveness he has experienced. It's his story. He has been forgiven. Happiness isn't just being forgiven, it's sharing my forgiveness with others. Brothers and sisters, your testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ revolves around this truth you are forgiven. Do you share that with others? Do I share it with others? Because happiness, blessed is the one who does. Happiness in life, who doesn't want a little more happiness? I mean, really. Don't feel bad for desiring happiness. Guess what happiness is? It's a gift from God. Don't feel guilty for desiring it. The questions we need to ask ourselves, we am gonna review it one more time. Where am I looking for advice? Because that's pretty important, if I wanna be happy. Am I looking to my family in Christ, God's people? Am I looking ultimately to this for my advice? Question two, what do I fear? More specifically, whom do I fear? What fear cancels out all other fears? A fear of God. Number three, how do I treat those around me? Can my life be characterized by the all-important word of servant? Because Jesus was a servant and we've been called to follow in his footsteps. Do I serve others? Do I long for God's presence found, not on a geography dot, found in the presence of His family? Now this is just a very small part of His family. We understand that, right? I mean, there are people around this world who are gathering together, some of them secretly, because they do not have the right to do so in a public way. And guess what? In those places... The church is growing much faster than in our freedom area right here in this part of the world. And people gather together for the mutual encouragement that comes from knowing we're strangers in this world. God's going to take us home one day, but we need each other until that happens. Do I long for God's presence found in his family? And finally, and this one might be the most important all, Brothers and sisters, when guilt grabs me by the throat, do I remember my forgiveness story and do I share it with others?